Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Off it's there. And here's Hill. Ricky Hill! Welcome to the latest episode of The Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're speaking with a Luton Town legend and former England international who spent well over a decade at Kenilworth Road as a player. But when he returned to the club as manager at the turn of the millennium, what he found there meant his stay would last just four months. In that time, he learned enough to see that something needed to change, not just at Luton, but in English football as a whole. This week for Book Club, we're reading Love of the Game by Ricky Hill. Played to Harper, played on to Ricky Hill. There's the counter attack. A brilliant goal by Ricky Hill. And that almost certainly will put Southampton out of this Little Woods Cup and Luton through to a semi final against Preston. Ricky Hill's technical skill, talent, and glide are talked about by everyone lucky enough to have watched him play in the 80s. And he achieved some incredible things with Luton as a player, including Luton's only League Cup. The outside there, Steve! And Luton are ahead in the very last minute. It'll take a monumental effort, effort now by Arsenal to get back on level terms. And the underdogs look as though they are going to have the last word. But where the story really gets interesting is in those four disconcerting months in charge of his former club. Reading like an alternative version of The Damned United, what makes it all so much more inconceivable is that this was a club he'd helped build on the pitch as a player. And when Ricky started to ask himself why, he began noticing how few black men like himself had been granted big chances in English football management and decided something should be done about it. Delighted to say Ricky Hill joins us now down the line to talk about his book, Love of the Game. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us for Book Club. Hi, Kate. Thank you very much. Hi, Jim. Glad to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you with us. Um, The book story then of the later stages of your career is one containing a fair few disappointments and a lot of frustration, I think. How do you feel looking back at that time now? 
without a doubt, sitting here with the years that have elapsed from that period, as you say, just after the millennium, um, very still disappointed, still frustrated, still semi um, surreal in respects to how it all panned out, even though it's you know over 20 odd years ago. The, the main fact is obviously having spent 13 years as a player at the club to then go back to Luton as a manager and be given the opportunity for only four months. Kind of, it's, it's kind of sticks in your, in your craw, so to speak. And at the time, what did you put that down to? Um, I would like to think it was, it wasn't just one single thing. Um, the club were in turmoil. They had been in turmoil, turmoil for three three and a half to four years prior to my arrival in respects to being in administration, um, stripped of all their assets in terms of the the better quality players that they had, had moved on to pastures new during those four years and had not been replaced. Um, lots of difficult infighting within the club in regards to ownership um, and also just the general lack of real development going throughout the whole club. So, to go there and to find that premise and to be then given four months to and judged as if it was my fault, the previous four years hardship, um, is still pretty tough for me to accept. Um, knowing my quality as a former player and, and as a reputable coach now in, in the journeys that I've had post my playing career, it's very difficult um, sitting here now to say, well, why wasn't I given the opportunity like many others have had um, to be judged with your own team before deciding that you are not capable. One of the really frustrating bits um, within reading the book about the experience that you had at Luton is the impression that even when you were given a chance to take over as manager, you still weren't really given a chance because of the stuff that you've alluded to, you know, the, the fact that you were given four months in charge in a, in a situation that was, that was, that was pretty ridiculous. I mean, you, you talk about how there was something like 13 players you identified who you didn't think would make it as professionals or, or some number like that. And you're proven right throughout the time of the book. And do you look back on that period and think that anybody could have could have made a success of those condition, conditions, you know, be that Jose Mourinho or, or, or anyone. And like, do you look back on that and think, well, well, what was the point? How did you ever stand a chance? It was it was a period of time where there was not enough realism, as, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what I was inheriting and what we would need in order for that to change. Um, I think I mentioned in the book, I had my one of my first interviews with Matt Smith from ITV and the chairman had already said to him, oh, we're, we're looking at the premiership in, in a couple of years. Now, yeah. you know, respectfully to the chairman, that was so foolhardy, but at the same time, it, it was out there. So I had to address that factor. And I said, of course, you know, we look to progress, but if, if we can stabilise things from where we were last year uh, with a new consortium coming in and, and identify new talent and bring through a proper process within a development of the club, then we can see maybe things will improve over a period of time. So all those little things and whether it was that false expectation because it's Ricky Hill that returned to the club, um, that's probably weighed against me too, but I sincerely would have expected um, a little bit more support uh, from within the club whilst I was there and also given the opportunity to actually make my mark or, or stamp my mark on, on the position. There's a real sense, Ricky, of, of frustration in the book about how things turned out with, with your coaching career, specifically because you seem to have just been met with brick walls everywhere you went. Like You went out and had coaching experience in the USA and you had coaching experience in Trinidad as well. And it wasn't like you were, you know, picking up little badges somewhere or, or just, you know, getting assistant roles or, or just working in academies. You were managing teams and winning things. And then in the UK, nobody seemed to be interested. And obviously that's got to be deeply, deeply frustrating. And, and, and so much of the book is, it deals with that, that frustration. And do you, see, do you see that changing anytime soon for black coaches has there been progress since that time or, or because you know we're not we're not seeing many black coaches in the game still and you 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 talk about this throughout various times in the book and we're not seeing it do you do you think the progress is is being made or do you think people are just saying that the progress is being made well, the issue i have and i've always had is that you know in order for 
to have more representation of diversity, particularly black ex-players, because the Asian side of things hasn't really come through the fore at this moment in time. But we've had numerous talented black players over the last 50 years within the British system. Now, looking at the managerial side of things, or even the coaching side of things, very few of those have managed to be able to get a position within the system and have the longevity of life within the system. So basically, at this moment in time, a black player's longevity within the professional environment tends to be for as long as he can play. And once he can no longer play, then it seems like the the system doesn't have any value in respect to his ability to to teach, to manage, to lead, um, and to innovate. So I've always gone against that grain. I've always subscribed to, to the theory that I'm as good as anyone else, you know, my playing career suggested I was of a elite level capability wise. I achieved the highest standard I could have done as a professional footballer, as an individual playing for my country uh, at, at all levels outside of school boys. Um, so why is it that someone can look at me and believe that I, I may not have the capabilities? All we're asking, or I'm asking, and I know plenty of other players are before my time, during my time and, and post my uh, playing career, they would like an opportunity to be within the only game that they know, be within the only profession that they've known, some from eight years old. But to, to date, if you're a black uh, or Asian minority, you are unlikely, highly unlikely to be able to have any kind of career um, post your playing career. And that, that to me is an injustice. And it's a gross injustice in respects to still continuing in 2021 and as you alluded to earlier Jim I've gone away and I've been successful I've, I've had I've got three professional coach of the year awards um, these are all professional leagues no one's given me the award it's because my style of coaching has, has paid dividends because we've won things my style has also indicated that players have improved because they've gone on to play for their national countries as in America, they've moved to bigger clubs in in the MLS and other clubs. So I do have a a talent for the game. I do have an understanding and I do know how to implement that. Now for England or the UK not to embrace what I have, again, it it frustrates me. Um, It's not surprising because we've touched on the lack of black players in the 70s when I actually managed to get through. So once again, it's trying to prove your worth, but this time without the boots tied to your feet, this time without the the visual ability for those decision makers to look down and say, oh yeah, look at look how talented he is, give him a chance. Now they, they sit amongst themselves, they discuss who the next good thing's going to be, and it generally stays within their historical network that they've used over the last 30 years, which doesn't include anyone of color. So it's yeah. a difficulty. It will not change until the mindsets, the appetite, and whether it's the sponsors that force clubs to um, look outside the historical network to give everyone an equality of opportunity. So this isn't how you felt particularly at Luton. It wasn't something that you, or it was something that you started to realise as your career developed and you found yourself not getting those opportunities. Or was it? Because I remember uh, at one point in the book, in fact, when you're having the conversation with the chairman over the phone when he's he's, um, giving you the sack, I guess, uh, you say, you know, this is going to be really significant for my career. And it seems as though perhaps even then you were aware that that it was very unlikely that you would get another opportunity. Was that because, you know, you'd been there such a short time and it was clear that someone hadn't backed you? Or were you starting to see the the kind of political, cultural elements of this? Because it wasn't until much later that you started to hear about the the Rooney rule, which um, hopefully you'll you'll talk us through. Yeah, no, I've always been aware of the difficulty from both fields, whether it's to play or to become a coach stroke manager. Because uh, as I say, I I grew up looking at some players that were older than me that I could not believe would not be capable to become professionals. And again, you need the luck and you you don't know if they've got the temperament when the actual opportunity arises, but I believe they should have been invited into the system 
And then whether they succeeded or failed would be down to them to a degree. But the difficulty from the coaching perspective was there was no prior track record. There was no one I could look to, like I looked at Albert Johannesson as a young six-year-old and said, I want to be him. There was no one that I knew who was a black coach who had been successful within the UK um, whilst we were coming towards of, of our career at 30, 31, 32. And the stigmas and the stereotypes that had been placed against us as players were still pre- uh, prevalent within the industry now pushed to the side to, to suggest now aimed at, oh, well, are they capable to become coaches? Are they capable to be managers? You know, and again, this was all a falsehood because it was misinformation, but it was stuff that was placed out there. And, and one, just a simple one was, you know, black players didn't go to courses to get their badges. So they're not preparing themselves to get the opportunity if and when an opportunity arises because they haven't gone through and being ordained by the FA coaches, whoever they might have been at the time. And that was ridiculous because it wasn't true. It was a falsehood. But it was allowed to continue to be out there. And people, you know, even I, I, I fell out with a, a really reputable and a good friend who was a journalist when in 2013, he said to me, the word on the street is that black players just don't want to go through that process. They think that they should be given an opportunity because their careers have been great. And I then pointed out to him, it's a perception, it's a false perception that is out there that that players don't do that and also that they're not capable. And I, I cited Phil Neville's first opportunity as a, as a coach, came as an England under-21 guest coach in the tournament in Toulon, and he was still a player at Everton during that season. So all of a sudden he's propelled into England under-21 duties as a guest coach. He's never done coaching to my knowledge before unless he was working in the academy. And likewise, Gary Neville's opportunity to become England's number two or an assistant manager at number two that's his first gig outside of being a professional footballer now I don't grudge begrudge any of that to Phil or Gary I mean they're smashing people and good luck to them if you can get it but that is not afforded to black people too often there's no one that I know has been given that opportunity to just go straight in it based on the perception that you are going to be capable and that's frustrating mm. because we are not discussed as Foot, having football through and through our veins. We're not discussed of all the wonderful things that we could do. A lot of the time, we are when people think about us and discuss us as players, it's for our physical attributes. Great skill, great speed, great in the air, this, whatever it might be, strong, but they don't talk about the nuances of us in terms of our articulation, our mannerisms and the ability to inspire. So let's go back and dig into that early time of yours at the club then that made you into Ricky Hill, the player that the Luton Town fans uh, loved so well. Tell us, first of all, I guess, what, what took you to Luton and what you made of those early years at the club. We know, of course, you went up with uh, David Pleats in the early 80s. So it was a time of pretty great success on the pitch. Yes. Okay. It, it, um, from my perspective, I was a young black player, young black boy from Crookerwood, uh, Northwest London, Northwest yeah, too. And um, I had aspirations to be a professional footballer you know, throughout, as long as I can remember, that, that was my dream. But I had no idea how I was going to make that dream a reality. Uh, I wasn't selected for the traditional county sides, um, whereas some of my colleagues at school, or one of them, Steve Gatton, was selected and, and was part of the Middlesex County and then joined Arsenal on schoolboy forms. There were a number of us other players who were talented, but unable at this moment in time, unseen anywhere. Um, the scouting network, networks weren't what they are now, for sure. Queen's Park Rangers were our local side, but I never knew of any black player that had actually been invited to a trial at Queen's Park Rangers during my youth. So the unknown was how was I going to force my way into the system? And it just happened for me just by chance. We had a very successful school side and we'd represented Middlesex County out in Hertfordshire. And at the game, David Pleat, Danny Begara and Roy McCrowan were there to scout on their three schoolboys that they had signed with the team from Hitchin. And we managed to beat them on the day. I played fairly well. We won 3-1. And my schoolmaster came in afterwards and said, oh, 
you know, you've been invited, three of you have been invited for trials up at Luton. And I initially, oh, my feeling. thoughts were, where, where is Luton? I, I had no idea. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I'm not going. Um, before, <laughs> you can get, you can take the train from Crickwood Station, where I was living, straight to Luton, one train direct there. I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going. Uh, great. So three of us so got was, on the train. Was it you were scared to travel, Ricky? Or was it, it just, you'd, it wasn't a place you'd heard of. So you were like, I don't want to play for somewhere I've not heard of. Or what, was, what was the thinking? It was the unknown. part of your dream, you right? Say, as you, as you uh, say, I, I, I had no idea where Luton was. It, I didn't really th- process it in terms of thinking, oh, you have to go somewhere. You might have to leave home to become to fulfill Aww. your dream. I was 15 years old and I'm thinking, okay, I want to be a footballer. I don't know how. This is all part of the process. Okay, you've got to go for a trial. Where is Luton? No idea. Um, <laughs> three, of us, three of us went to the trials and our first day there, um, our half terms were different to the Bedfordshire half terms. And so we ended up training with the first team in the very first morning. No oh, reserves wow. or no youth team. It was straight into the first team. Three of us there, 15. But I was not particularly phased by it or unfazed because I'd been used to growing up and playing against bigger people than myself and, and guys that are maybe 10 years my, my senior at times and holding my own um, by just being smart in terms of how I used the ball rather than trying to be physical with them and, and that's those sort of things. So it was a great experience. In the afternoon, we went on this on the Kenworth Road pitch, was fantastic. It was the first time on an actual professional ground in terms of the turf-wise. So as we stepped oh, wow. on there and Danny Bagara took myself and my two teammates, Paul Moroni and Peter Petru, onto the side of their pitch and he showed us three tricks. And he said, you're going to come back in six weeks time. I'm going to test you again to see if you've mastered these tricks. Sure enough, six weeks later, we were invited back again, Um, went to the same corner of the pitch. Danny said, you know, I'm going to ask you to do those tricks now. And I managed to do all three of them fairly well, uh, consistently. My two two teammates didn't manage to do them. And I think at that time that Danny would have said, well, okay, in his mind, this one seems to be pretty serious about trying to become a player. Your your rise into the first team was pretty pretty instant, wasn't it? In a in a sense, in the grand scheme of things, you were was it seventeen years old when you made your debut? Just seventeen, Jim. Yeah, just. I, I was seventeen in March, and I, I managed to get somehow. They they thought I was worthy to get a place on the bench in April. I had no indication it was coming. And no idea. No, I only I'd only played thirteen reserve games, and I've been playing in the youth team. Uh, I've only been at the club for five months at that stage. So how does that feel? I mean, obviously, it's something that you've been looking forward to your your entire kind of life, really, if you've always wanted to be a footballer. And then your dream is just suddenly coming true. Is, is it is it better in that way, do you think, that you don't have time to overthink it? Um, for me, it was. I was always gearing myself for that moment. Now, when that moment came, it was totally unaware i was totally unaware of the situation that might happen um those days it was one sub and i was the sub but even as the sub i never really thought oh i might get on here it was a case of oh i'm with the first here i'm going to enjoy watching the game close up from the touchline but when i actually got on the field there was no nerves i don't know if there was any time for nerves although i never really suffered with that particular condition um and things transpired quite well on the day for me your time at, at Luton was was very f- fruitful, wasn't it? It was one of the most successful times in, in, in their history, really. And you, you won the League Cup against my team, Arsenal. Thanks for that. Um, and th- what is that like? What's that like on the day that your team wins a cup final? That must be an incredible feeling. I've heard that often players struggle to remember what actually happened because there's such a sort of flood of elation and emotion. Is that the case or do you have clear memories of it? It's... It's strange because you're 100% right, Jim, in regards to, I don't remember a great deal. Um, And again, for me, it was the culmination of 13, 14 years at the club. Um, The fact that I'd missed two major games prior to that final, in terms of the semi-final, FA Cup semi-final against Wimbledon at White Hart Lane, which we lost. I'd also missed the similar cup final against Reading, which we lost at Wembley again. Um, so this was the third of, of, of the big games that we were entered into during that season. And I hadn't played any games whatsoever leading up to the final. And, you know, I was just glad and grateful that I was actually part of the team that won the first domestic cup for 
polluting town in their in their history. Um, but you rightly say, I don't remember a great deal. And that goes through all the cup finals I've played in my youth and, and various things. It's, it's one of those things whereby you're so focused on the job in hand, you're so focused on being the one whose name's going to be put on the carpet and, you know, who's going to have their arms raised at the end of the game and celebrating that. You don't really consider all the other added uh, extremities that are out there at that time in, in regards to you, you see it, you kind of just get absorbed in it and it's kind of this surreal feeling where you're floating within the atmospheric scenario that's in front of you. It's finished. It's finished. And Luton have won their first major trophy. They've tried for so long since they were formed back in 1897. Really an inspirational character is Foster. He's, uh, he's led the club brilliantly in his years there. He came from Aston Villa Reserves. Well, this action never changes. As he'll lift the cup. It's just that the faces do. And that's a new face and a new club. The name goes on the Littlewoods Cup. Luton Town FC. Ricky, we talked a fair bit then about your time as a player at Luton and we've heard, of course, that you you won this incredible opportunity, as it seemed then, to go on and become manager of this club that you'd served so faithfully uh, as a player. And you said that immediately it was clear that, that things weren't quite right in the club and you set about, in all good faith, trying to fix them. Now, one of the things that comes out in the book is that you you felt as though you'd shown loyalty to Luton and perhaps you expected that that would be shown back to you when you returned to the club. Do you think that was a sort of naive way of looking at things or is that just the way you want to operate and if other people aren't going to behave in that way, then pff, worse for them? Um, I think it's a bit of both, Kate. Uh, to be honest... Because it was the romance side of things in regards to when Luton came knocking, it had been a, a position that I felt in my mind I would have loved to have attained, uh, becoming manager of Luton Town. I'd actually spoken to David Evans in 1987 whilst I was still a player to put forward the, the situation whereby um, I would like the opportunity if it ever arose to, be, to put myself forward to, to be considered for the, for the manager position. I was still a player um, at the time, but John Moore had left the club and it was kind of in that position, interim position where there was no manager. And David Evans spoke to me and he said, Ricky, I understand. He says, you know, you don't have your license right now. And if Brian Horton had had his license at that stage, he would have been the manager of Luton Town. So he said, you know, I wouldn't travel on an aeroplane if the pilot didn't have a light and air flying license. So, it's the same with me. So I've no doubt you will become a manager at Luton Town in some, at some stage. I have no doubt about that. So I thought, great. Um, I'd gone away. I worked at various academies at Sheffield Wednesday and at Tottenham. I'd been to America and had success there. And um, I felt I developed my style. I've been on the courses that they suggested that players go and take to then prepare yourself to become a manager. I felt you know, I'd honed my style in terms of how I would like my teams to have the identity and the DNA. Um, I've always felt that players who I've worked with have respected my knowledge, respected my mannerism, um, felt that I was someone who could lead and, and kind of guide players. And I felt my eye for the game and my understanding of the game was up there with the best of people. Uh, you have to look at stylistically how I played. It wasn't anyone that taught me that. It was myself that had taught myself to, to do the right things at the right time as best as I could um, and arm myself to be the best footballer. And likewise, I think I've armed myself to be the best coach, stroke manager that I can be from a psychology perspective. But mm. then going there and seeing the mess that was there um, it was a surprise to me. My closest friend, Q, that I'd grown up with and been neighbours from five years old, said to me uh, years before I got the written job, 
by the time you get the opportunity, there'd be nothing there for you to work with. And yeah, he was very perceptive. He's a perceptive person anyway, but those words were prophetic in respect to what I actually found when I, when I went through those gates. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think the hard thing, Ricky, is that, you know, it's like trying to pin down an eel, this, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just been, there's a report out today that says there's, there's no ev- a government report that says there's no evidence of institutional racism. And when we're trying to talk about these topics, you know, we- we're trying to collect together anecdotes that you've experienced. And it's definitely something that you've strongly felt. But it's still quite hard if you're trying to if we as a collective, you know, society, if you like, are trying to convince people who are making decisions who might not look like us, who might not be like us that these things are as we see them. Yeah. I mean, it's such a massive challenge, isn't it? I can only speak from an informed position from my industry, which is football. Mm. And if they want to, Lord Treesman in 2011, he'd done an independent review on whether the FA was institutionally racist. And he found as a former chairman of the FA, the irony of it, he found that it was. And, you know, I've, I've referenced certain things that he found on his founders within my book. Now, that's 10 years ago. Um, and our industry, as in soccer, and I'm taking away the behavioural racism because that, you can never eradicate that. Behavioural racism is owned by individuals. It's not owned by football. It's not owned by industry. It's individuals and they're, upbringing or the tribe that they they move with it's tribal the community the environment all those things are part of the behavioral racism the online space that we have that's fine now i'm talking about the industry and sponsors and institutions that do not have a reflection on society running through their organizations you know the, the football industry outside of the field of play is a 0.03% black and minority ethnic groups involvement. The 97 point, whatever, 99, 99.97% is a white enclave. So that's a disparity, a gross disparity. And whether it's institutional or just uh, racial bias or naivety, it's wrong and it's a gross injustice because and without being conceited, we help set the table to what this game has been built upon. The evolution of the game, the Sky TVs, the global prominence, the the wonderful, beautiful game that everyone talks about, that included black people and people from minority ethnic groups. Now, it seems like, yes, you're still welcome to continue to set that table. 
on the field through your prowesses on the field of player play but you're not welcome once you can no longer play and if you, you want to call it institution racism then so be it now any report that you do on that front is bound to show a different outcome to what was on the daily mail today so this exact problem was recognized within the nfl and it was dealt with 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 something called the rooney rule and uh, when, when you heard about this ricky it it clearly lit a fire under you and you did did everything you could to to bring it here so how do you how do you feel where do you feel we are now in terms of effectively implementing the rooney rule and, and can you take us through the rooney rule as well just so those listening at home can get a kind of clear idea of, of what it is certainly jim it's um the rooney rule was created in 2003 march 2003 Prior to that, it was discussed in October 2002. So from discussion to implementation took four months. And what it was, it came around because there was a lack of opportunity for black coaches at the time. They managed to get into the system as coaches, assistant coaches, wide receiver coaches, but they weren't offensive coordinators and they weren't head coaches. So they decided they needed to do something which would enable those who were coaching within the system, those who had great solid careers, stalwart careers, to get the opportunity to interview for a head coaching position or a offensive coordinator position or a front office position whenever a vacancy became available. Um, again, the same problem that we have here where people, that decision makers will always favor their contacts, their historical network of recruitment that they normally go to, or the preferred agent or ex-teammate that they know within the system. So to break that mold and to try to introduce some new blood, so to speak, into the conversations, they decided to get together and create the rule called the Rooney Rule, which Mr. Dan Rooney, the ex-president of the Pittsburgh Steelers, was part of the diversity committee and they decided to name it after him um, because of he was the one that was sitting in the chair at the time as the incumbent. Now, it only came around to a degree where the real push came when Johnny Cochran, the ex-OJ Simpson um, lawyer who got OJ off the trial and Cyrus Myrie, a civil rights lawyer, Jewish civil rights lawyer from Washington, um, got together and they said, they, they put out the word that there was going to be a boycott of all the sponsors that were part of the NFL, their brands, Coca-Cola, whatever else. And they would get the communities, the diverse communities to boycott buying their products because there wasn't enough progression or wasn't enough inclusion at the top end of the game. Um, and when that was muted, the commissioner, Paul Cabrera, his name, and, um, he decided we need to do something, got the owners together and said, what can we do? Similar to the Premier League, they got a committee of 32 owners and they have to have three quarters of the votes in order to implement a new rule, a new policy. Apparently it was universal that everyone decided, yes, let's do this. So they then implemented the Rooney Rule, which allowed one minority candidate to be interviewed for a position as and when they became available before filling that position. In 2005, one of the, that was 2003, one of the presidents, Matt Millen at Detroit Lions, decided he was going to uh, hire his preferred choice without going through the process of interviewing a minority candidate, a black or minority candidate. And he, Matt Millen was fined by the league $250,000 for not following the proper process. Now, so that shows that they're really following it, right? That right. shows that there's actually mm. some teeth in this. Because th th there's been this uh, football leadership diversity code in October um, that a whole load of clubs have signed up to in this country. But I don't, you know, it's this idea that you should be able to um, interview and to hire, you know, like, th oh, what is it? 30% of new hires are female in senior leadership and team operations 59% of new hires will be black Asian or of mixed heritage and then it says or a target set by the club based on local demographics so I guess the difference even though you're going to say the difference is that there there's like some downside there's some practical downside to not conforming to this whereas in this country 
it's all a bit like, oh, see how you feel. <laughs> it's hmm. it, respectfully to all those who sat in the room and devised these initiatives and policies. I don't understand what is it that am I missing in regards to the quest for equality for all? Why, first of all, why is it always voluntary? There's a voluntary recruitment code, and now there's a voluntary diversity, football diversity code. Why is everything where racial inclusion is concerned optional or, or voluntary? Why isn't it something that we all adhere to when we all want to have a total um, equality of opportunity for all races, irrespective, and all genders, irrespective? But it doesn't seem to be the case. So from my perspective... The Rooney Rule was taken verbatim or, or rolled out um, by the FA in 2017. Now, this was 13 years after I introduced it to John Barnwell. What, what's happened in those 13 years? Why all of a sudden this social, this conscience that's developed whereby, oh, yeah, we think this might be a good idea to, to help us to look at a greater recruitment pool. The Voluntary Recruitment Code was rolled out in 2016, only 10 pilots a day. Suddenly, when they realise that it means nothing, because once the whistle is blown, they can revert back to type and employ and hire whoever you want. You know, the one manager left in the morning, as we saw two weeks ago at Birmingham, and the new manager was rolled in in the afternoon, Lee Boyer from Charlton. And then Charlton made two appointments, and I don't know what process they went through. So let's not kid ourselves. No one should be, this, this illusion and the pretense of it is what's frustrating to me. Because if you are talking about true equality, why then uh, are there only 52 clubs that are signed up to the Football Diversity Leadership Rock Code when there's 117 or whatever it might be that are uh, able to sign up to this thing? It's, you know, so from that perspective, not enough's been done Football themselves are not doing enough. The institution, the stakeholders, the governors of the game, and the custodians of the game are not doing enough in regards to the true creating a, a, an organisation that is truly accessible for every race. Now, I've written to Richard Masters on three occasions, and I know he's only just got in the position in 219. And I'll continue to write to him until he starts to consider and look at things differently to what is being done now. Because whilst I've, 2004, I introduced this thing, which wouldn't have made any difference. It might not have made one difference. If those per the person who got into the job for the interview didn't interview correctly, didn't do himself justice, didn't know, have a, a clear plan, a clear vision in his mind, how he would take the club forward, what he would do, how he would address things, who he'd recruit. If he didn't have that, then he wouldn't get the job. And, and that's not an issue to me. I don't want tokenism. I just like, would like the opportunity to sit in front of those who make decisions and explain my vision for why I should be the right, the perfect candidate to get the position. At the end of the book, Ricky, you include some of your management achievements. Did you see this as being, this the writing of this book with Adrian Durham, did you see that as being an opportunity to set out your case for what should be happening in society? Or was it even to say, look, this is what I've achieved. I just want to lay that out there because it's not been acknowledged in my view. Or were you even saying hey, I'm out here, I could still manage, I'd love to. All of the above, Kate, without a doubt. Um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, and I, and I think Rodney Marsh picked up on something, I know Rodney was one of the first ones to sack me, but I'd done an interview with Rodney last week um, for his Sirius FM um, radio show in, in America. And he said, you yes. said something, in, in it, and it really affected me. And I said, well, what's that, Rodney? He said, you said in an uh, interview with Sky quite recently that you were invisible. What did you mean by that? And I, I went through the whole process. He goes, no, no, no. What did you mean that you were invisible? So I said, well, because I've represented my country. I've paid to a certain level. I've done all I can do. I've done worked at Tottenham. And I've worked at Sheffield Wednesday. And I've gone away and I've got these accolades. I've won trophies. And I've got these coaching awards. And I've got people that I've worked with that have gone under. I said, but in England, I'm still invisible. So from that perspective... It was 
the book is something to let people know, not about me per se in terms of, oh, look how great I am, but just that given an opportunity, there are others outside of those who you look at now and believe are successful. I mean, not every manager wins trophies. Not every manager gets promotions. Not every manager wins individual accolades as a coach, but they still find work within their profession. Um, they still, irrespective of them being relegated, manage to get repeat opportunities. Irrespective of them being fired three months ago on occasions where, we, and I presume they were fired because their results weren't great at the time, they still managed to get rehired three months down the road. Now, with my success being what it is, with my playing career being what it is, I still haven't been able to get repeat opportunities for whatever reason. Now, uh, we, you know, I have people writing off all the time and sending CVs in. And I think we're at the point now where just take my name away, put down my the merits of my awards that I've won or my career in terms of playing whatever levels I've played, the amount of games I've played, what I've won as a, a player and also as a coach and where I've coached without any name attached to it and ask people, would you be interested in someone that has these uh, capabilities? Um, would you be interested in having a conversation? Mm. The blind interview, so to speak, mm. blind CV. Because uh, I don't, I hate to think it's race-based alone, but for me, I can't help but think that is the only thing that you could look at my CV and say, well, what's different to him than Adrian Heath, who's now at or um, Minnesota in the MLS or other adversaries that I coached again who have moved from the NASL that I was at my last coaching gig and have gone into the MLS. There's four ex-coaches at a level that I performed against, competed regularly against, and, you know, my sides were always renowned as the quality sides, and I won the championship in that environment. Yet still, I'm not even included for a, a conversation even a reach out to say, would you be interested in this opportunity or let me know what your your vision is? Because mm. you went for an academy job at Luton not so long ago as well, didn't you? Do you Ricky, do you see any um, cause for optimism based on some of the steps that have been taken, particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement? I mean, I know for one, one example that has been talked about a lot is this question of how uh, black players are described during commentary. I know a lot of broadcasters have been hosting workshops to try and explain to commentators and try and wear, make them aware of the language that they're using and how that can be, you know, biased that they don't even know that they ha that they are exhibiting. So that's one example, I guess, of people trying to take steps. Um, do, you, do you see others? Do you see sources of optimism more generally in society at the moment? I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, trust me. <laughs> Um, again, I don't have an inferiority complex about anything um, in terms of your capabilities or what you can achieve. What I would say is there's been tremendous performative empathy shown. Tremendous. Everyone, all the organisations, everyone rallying how wrong it is. The, the Sky, I watch Sky and I see the advert come on, we're in, we're in, I'm in. I don't understand what that means. Um, really and truly, I'm, I'm in. I'm in to what? Because ultimately, as individuals, we all play our part and we all do our part in terms of making this a, a more just world that we live in and where, where we shouldn't really have to talk about equality. The workshops, again, to me, I, I'm slightly, uh, what's the word, confused, perplexed. I understand potentially why, but no one taught me how to intermix with white people. I'm black. I went to school. I learned right from wrong. I went in my home. I learned right from wrong. I learned how to speak to people in the correct manner, be polite, be manageable. But why is it now that because we've had these situations where black inclusion is not prevalent in, in all industries, now we're having workshops. Now we're having education that needs to go there. Now we're having, you know, to, to reprogram people's mentality. I I always assumed that we were just human beings, all of us, but we came in different shades, shades and different sizes. 
Now, for me, from that to take place, it suggests that it's a stopgap, it's piecemeal, it's to say, yes, we are trying better, to do better, but ultimately it doesn't really affect the numbers and the change in hierarchy or the landscape in terms of inclusion. And when someone as great as Vincent Company comes out and says that throughout all his travels, in all the games at Man City, he very rarely sees people like him within the organisations and senior management. Now, that's not going to change overnight. But unless there's an appetite and a real awakening to, to, to understand that, yes, this is wrong. Yes, this is an injustice. And that goes from FIFA and all the governing bodies and whoever they are, you know, that sit there, uh, what's the word in terms of talking about the... The, the game and the rules of the game, but having no diversity of inclusion within those rooms, that has to change. And it's not as if there's not people that are capable. I've retired 30 odd years ago from England. And I haven't been sitting on my hands. I've been going to different countries with, you know, poorer resources, having to start from scratch, leave your family behind, do the hard yards to continue developing your career. So of course I've got something that I could offer to the game, whether it be coaching or within the structure of, 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 the, of the football to make it a better place for everyone. And again, I'm pro-black, but I'm pro-humanity. I'm pro-human beings. Uh, I've coached more white players than I've coached black players in my career, I would suggest. And I've never had an issue. But it seems like you have to put us in a certain department in terms of, or we need to do this because they need more help. No, we just need opportunity. And that's what's been missing since I've retired and lots of players like myself retired 30 years ago. And until sponsors and those stakeholders take the lead and force clubs through denial of funding that they get every year to build their club upon, to pay their staff, to pay their mates. If they start denying them the, the funding because they don't have an inclusive environment, then we might see things being changed. I've, I'm not an activist. I've never professed to be an activist, but I want equality and I want it for, it's too, maybe too late for me. You know, yeah, everyone has a shelf life, but I know I could serve the game in some capacity, but there's generations that have been lost along the way, like myself over the last 30 years. Every five, six years, there's a new generation of players that have suddenly come and been stars, helped their sides be successful, never to be seen again, were names never to be called again in a football context. And that cannot be right. Oh, Ricky, I, I, we really appreciate you talking to us today. It's been a fascinating hour and a bit. And I actually feel that in the first half, some of the stuff we were talking about on football, I feel more informed just having heard you speak about the game. So I can see why you're so sure that you you are a person who has the ability to give something in management. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us and, and for your you. book. Thank you very much for reading the book. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Ricky Hill, for joining us today on The Book Club. The book, Love of the Game, is out now with Pitch Publishing. We'll post a link to where you can get it on our socials at Football Ramble. Do let us know what we should read next. I'm at KVL Mason. Jim is... At Jim Campbell TFR. Or, yes, Football Ramble I've already given you. And we'll catch you next time for another episode of Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Jim, do you want to yeah, know about that, that Rogue Vogue? Have you got time for the Rogue Vogue? The, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah let's, uh, let's hear about the, the, the Rogue Vogue. Because you, you, talk, you talk about an injury <laughs> in the book where basically was it that your bone was growing too much and just sort of you had a bone floating around in your leg. No one wants that. Right. I don't know why I want to hear about this. It's horrifying. <laughs> To be honest, again, when you're a professional footballer, there's a certain naivety in, in your world whereby you just want to play and you play and you just, if you get injured, you just want to get back and play. And there's a recklessness 
that goes along with that. I know now the medical situation is so much greater and uh, the knowledge is there whereby they know exactly how much you're bleeding and when you're bleeding and when the bleeding should stop and what you need to do. And it's meticulous now in terms of how the, the treatment is and the rehab. Back when we were coming through, a, a knock would be just a knock and you try to run it off and a magic sponge would come out and put the cold <laughs> water on you. You're all right, son, off you go. And the next day your leg would have been seized up and it's okay, you need to break that down. And he put his fingers in there and try to break the blood that had congealed there wasn't circulating because it's damaged, it's bruised. Now, we know now that's the worst thing you can do. You need to let the blood settle. You need to just ice it. You need to then start gradually moving your leg and get some motion back to then get the blood to circulate in its natural form. Unfortunately, back in my time where it was a lot, it was competitive and people would go into contact and you'd get blows. I'd suffered a number of dead legs to the outside of my thigh where people just run into you near you and it would just go deep into through the, the muscle towards the bone. Now, again, mm. two days, three days, you're back, you're back playing and you're, you're running around. Unbeknown to me, during those blows, what was happening, because it went so deep into the femur, it hit the femur and then it, it caused sparks of bone to, to, be, to flake off of the femur and it was like shooting <laughs> just running around it between in your leg but what they would do then it would latch onto the blood that wasn't circulating properly and congeal and then formed unbeknown to me this is all unbeknown to me and i'm still playing week in week out oh, i'm still no. you know training every day not an issue and it i didn't realize until one day we we're playing west ham um, in the evening and someone in the dressing room, we were just messing about and someone just leant against my, my thigh. And next thing you know, this, I, a, an object popped out. You can imagine like those films, <laughs> men in black and that where you just see something yeah. pop out from the side of your leg. And it was just like that. And I thought, what is that? And it was still the skin and it popped out into like an oval site shape. And I thought, I spoke to the physio, there was no pain. It was just this foreign and it felt like it was really hard. It felt like bone. I played that night, didn't feel nothing of it. And then I, I continued to train and it settled back in. So it kind of went out and it went, came back in. Um, and then I, I actually found out when I, I thought I pulled my hamstring. I had pulled my hamstring previously and um, a few years earlier. And I thought I pulled my hamstring again before a cup tie against um, West Ham. And sorry, against Watford. And I missed that game and they treated it as a hamstring injury for five, six weeks. But every time I ran, I felt a, a sensation that come into my, in my hamstring area and the whole hamstring became sensitive, the skin around it, it came slightly swollen. It took me to a specialist and he put his hand right in between my muscles. And he says, you've got calcification there. And that wasn't the original injury I had on the side. So ultimately they, they had to operate on it. They, put me on the bench and they opened it up on the operating theater and they took out this massive piece of bone, which they had to break whilst I was out on the um, theater, on, on the th in, in the theater, they had to break it whilst they, they opened my, my whole leg so wide to get it out and then stitch oh. me up. And that's when I went to Sweden for the, um, for the loan period. And they also at the same time, they took out the one that was on the side of my right leg, um, but they cut into my hamstring to get, the bone out of this one. And it was uh, the first time, well, Bernard Meggett was, a, was the um, surgeon. He said he'd never seen a foreign body bone that had been in someone of this size before. And again, I've been playing and I've been playing relatively well because I've been in the England squad that whole season. Wow. Well, um, I'm I'm slightly sorry I asked. I, don't, I didn't. didn't it, it sounds worse. It than was what never going to be a nice story, was it? It, it sounds worse. <laughs> than what it, was. So, it sounds absolutely awful, Mickey. To be honest. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.